Our series this uh, semester is going to be, Where is Jesus in the Old Testament? And I am excited about this series, because one of the things I love to talk about is the Old Testament. And I particularly like to talk about it at a place like Belmont, where a lot of people have grown up in Christian settings, which means they haven't really heard much about the Old Testament. And if they have heard about the Old Testament, they've often heard about it, sort of spoken about in the wrong sort of ways. Uh, I also know that many of you have probably taken Old Testament at Belmont. And there's lots of things we could say about issues and things you've been taught about in Old Testament class. But rather than sort of have a bunch of arguments about stuff, I think that there's a certain power in seeing the story that undergirds all the weird stories. That there's, there's actually really power to understanding the big picture that helps give you a context for understanding, uh, admittedly, a lot of strange stuff that appears in the Old Testament. Now, why do we believe uh, that, that Jesus is even in the Old Testament? Uh, why would we think that? It's not actually something that everybody agrees with. There are some people who say, well, you should never read the Old Testament except through the eyes of the people who were the original readers. You can't do that. Why, why are you sort of, sort of putting this later edition, Jesus, back into the Old Testament? That's really not right. That's not appropriate. You're going to misread the Old Testament if you do that. Maybe some of you have been exposed to that viewpoint. Here's what I would say. The reason that we find Jesus in the Old Testament as Christians is because that's what Jesus himself taught his followers. We're going to look at a couple passages where it talks about this. And and so what I want you to understand is the reason that we're looking at where is Jesus in the Old Testament, various reasons. But one of the most important ones is it's important to know where you come from. It's important to know where you come from. Well, some of us had an opportunity to go on a mission trip to Chicago the first week in January. Raise your hand if you were part of that. You should ask them about their trip and make them share with you uh, what God did there, Um, besides getting our rental van stolen. But there were a lot of really good things that happened, too. Um, But one of the things that we had the opportunity to do there in Chicago is learn a little bit about how the neighborhood where we were working on the south side of Chicago got to be how it is. And hopefully people will come back and they'll begin to ask questions about where they live. Questions they may never have really thought about before. Like, how did this neighborhood get to be the way it is? How did Belmont get to be where it is? I actually picked up a book when we were up there in Chicago to use bookstore on how did Nashville become Music City? Like, how did Music Row end up there? How did that happen? What are the stories behind all of that sort of stuff? The same kind of thing is true, but even more importantly, when we come to the Old Testament as Christians. Now, I understand that not everybody here would describe themselves as a Christian, but if, if you come to RUF, understand that's the vantage point uh, we're coming from. What is, what is the Bible, what's the point of the Old Testament for Christians? It's this. You can't really understand what Jesus is about, at least in any kind of significant way, without really understanding what the Old Testament is about. And what Jesus himself teaches is, unless you see that the Old Testament is all about him, you don't understand the Old Testament. So the first, the first point I want to make is that Jesus teaches us that the Old Testament is all about him. Let me pray, and then I'm going to show you a couple passages where this is true, and then we're going to talk some about why this matters for us in this day and age. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that now as we come to it, that we can come to a word that is God-breathed, 
that is your word. And we pray that you would open our hearts to receive what you have for us tonight. May you open our eyes to see Jesus. May you open our hearts to receive your grace. And may you be glorified by all that we do and all that I say tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 24. If you have one of those uh, scripture passages that we handed out, you actually are going to have an easier time of it because we're going to look at a couple different passages and they're all on that one sheet. So if you have a Bible, you're going to have to look at Luke chapter 24, later John chapter 5, and then Genesis chapter 3. Okay, so Luke 24 to start with. Some of you might know this story. This is right after Jesus has been crucified. Some of the people, some of the disciples, and some of the women have been to the tomb. This is Easter Sunday, the first Easter Sunday. They've been to the tomb that morning, and they've seen that the tomb is empty. But a lot of people don't know about that yet. That's the context for Luke 24, starting at verse 13. Now that same day, the same day on which a few of the people realized that the tomb is empty, two of them, means two followers of Jesus, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleophas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses, that means the first five books of Moses, Jesus thought that Moses wrote them, by the way, and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. When he was at the table with them, this is a little bit later, they stop and they they share a meal together. Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Later that day is the appearance of Jesus in the upper room. What's interesting is, you know, in the early church, there were some people who taught this false idea that Jesus was, didn't really have a body 
but he was like a ghost, sort of a spiritual being. And what's interesting in this passage is that the New Testament sort of records sort of like the astonishment of the people as they originally experienced this. They don't like clean up the details to try to work against that heresy. This is one of the reasons that you can be confident that this is an accurate sort of original eyewitness testimony because it doesn't bear the marks of, well, we better make sure no one could take this as thinking that Jesus was a ghost. When it says he disappeared from their sight, right? That If you wanted people to sort of not be confused, you would get rid of that, right? The reason it's in there is because that's what happened. Even though it made for some confusion, it's still in there. Same thing happens here because the disciples later that day are in an upper room, okay, the top floor of a house, two-room, two-story house, and the door is locked. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears in the middle of them. Again, the kind of story that if you wanted to sort of go against this false idea that Jesus was a ghost, you'd leave that out. They don't. Why? Because it happened, and it freaked them out. And they wrote it down just as it occurred. And so he gets in this room, and then he says to these uh, disciples, again, who are still trying to figure out why he had to die and what's going on now. And in verse 44 of Luke 24, it says this. He said to them, Mrs. Jesus, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. So that's one place where Jesus explicitly says, you guys are depressed and discouraged and confused because you don't believe the Bible. And by the Bible, at this point in time, he means the Old Testament. And what specifically don't you understand about it? You don't understand that it's about me. It's all about me from the beginning to the end, from A to Z. This is sort of the way that he refers to it. From Moses through the prophets, from the beginning to the end, it's all about me. Now, they shouldn't have been surprised at this because earlier in Jesus' ministry, in John chapter 5, there was this scene um, where Jesus, you know, well, this kind of thing happened a lot, where Jesus is arguing with the Jewish leadership. And at this point, Jesus says, now remember, the Jewish leadership, for the Jewish leadership in the days of Jesus, Moses was the guy. Like, whatever Moses said, they wanted to believe it. In fact, they regularly criticized Jesus because they didn't think that he was scrupulous enough in his obedience to the things that Moses had said in the Old Testament law. They regularly condemned him for that. And so there's this point where he's having an argument with them. And listen to what he says to these people who think that Moses is their guy. In John chapter 5, this is verse uh, 45 and 46. John chapter 5, if you're following in the Bible, you have to turn there. John chapter 5. In the midst of this debate with the Jewish leaders, Jesus says this, But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? So Jesus is saying, you don't understand what Moses says and what Moses wrote unless you understand that he's writing about me. Now, that's a pretty bold thing to say. That's the kind of thing that no normal, sane Jewish teacher would say in the first century. It's just crazy. Yeah, Moses wrote about me. You wrote about me. It's all about me. And and the problem with this is Jesus has just sort of done this miracle um, where there is this guy 
who couldn't walk. You remember, you remember the story? Guy couldn't walk, and he gets let down. Uh, anyway, there's this whole healing thing, and, and the, the leaders are confounded, and they're kind of flipping out. And then Jesus, like, gets into this argument with them. He's like, look, you guys say you believe in Moses? Look, Moses talks about me. You don't believe Moses because you don't believe me. Now, the, the, Jesus is teaching. You can't get around the fact that Jesus is teaching that the only right way to understand the Old Testament is to see it being about Jesus. Yet here's the tragedy. For most people, sort of card-carrying evangelical Christians who say they believe all the right things that they're supposed to believe, for so many of them, they do not understand how to read the Old Testament. Uh, Even in the hymnal from the Presbyterian Church that I'm a member of, that I'm a minister in, we have a ridiculously bad hymn called Dare to be a Daniel. Like, this hymn is so bad. Has anybody sung this hymn? Some of you, like, at children's camp? Yes. It's a horrendous hymn. It's so exactly opposite of how you should read the Old Testament. In other words, when you don't understand that the Old Testament is really about Jesus, what you do with it is you turn all the little stories into sort of Christian versions of Aesop's fables, where you're either supposed to be like Daniel or not be like Daniel. Now, Daniel is a pretty commendable character, so for the most part, you can say, be like Daniel. So that hymn works. But be like David? Well, it's harder. Like David when? Like David before he has sex with Bathsheba and basically takes over her and has her husband killed? Do you want to be that David? Uh, you know, uh, or the David who likes, you know, plays his little harp and makes Saul's madness go away. I guess that's kind of cool, and you all would love to have that power with your music, wouldn't you? So... You know, you, you, you get into all this confusion, it becomes very arbitrary when you turn the Old Testament into stories that are about what we need to do. Here's the thing. Here's what really matters. Jesus is saying, first of all, if you don't read the Old Testament as being about me, you misunderstand two-thirds of the Bible. Do, do you think that there's very many situations in life where you're going to do okay if you just throw out two-thirds of the base of knowledge? How many of your classes, well, maybe I don't even want to know. <laughs> How many of your classes do you pass if you miss two-thirds of the class? classes? You know, well, I had one professor where, you know, we, he, was, he was like a lawyer and he didn't really want to be there. And so it was an open book midterm and then we got that back on the day of the final, graded it ourselves, and then he handed them back to us and said, now the final are the same questions, just in a different order, and it's open book, and you can use the test that we just graded. So unless you took that class, you probably need to study. You probably need to read something, right? You can't, you, what, you know, it, my, my son loves to build Legos. Cooper just loves Legos. And, you know, it, it'd be difficult to build, like, the Star Destroyer. You know, you've seen some of these amazing, huge Legos. If you throw out the first two-thirds of the instructions, and, you, and, you know, and there's not very many things that work well that way. So Christians who don't understand that the Old Testament is about Jesus are trying to make sense of who they are without two-thirds of the scriptures that tell you who you are and where you came from, right? Now, and this comes in a situation which most Christians don't know anything about their history or where they came from anyway. They don't know anything about church history. You can be a religion major at Belmont and never have to take a church history class, Right? I'm pretty sure that's still true. I remember Stanley Hauerwas getting on, you know, the school of religion when he came a few years ago making that point. Yeah, most Christians don't understand who they are. So we need to understand the Old Testament, right? Um, there's a great um, quote I love. I put it on your outline from this guy, Ed Clowney. Ed Clowney passed away a few years ago, but he is Tim Keller's mentor. If you guys have ever heard of Tim Keller's pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church and 
These days, a noted speaker and author. He's great, and especially his Old Testament sermons are great. If you want to get more of where is Jesus in the Old Testament that we'll have time to do in RUF this semester, you can look up some of his sermons at Redeemer.com. But I love this, this quote from, from his mentor, Ed Clowney. He says this, There are great stories in the Bible, but it's possible to know Bible stories yet miss the Bible story. The Bible has a storyline. It traces an unfolding drama. The story follows the history of Israel, but it does not begin there, nor does it contain what you would expect in a national history. All kinds of significant events in the history of Israel are not in Scripture. And that doesn't mean that Scripture is wrong or confused or missing them. It means that that's not necessarily the point to tell a national history of Israel as a nation. If we forget the storyline, Clowney says, we cut the heart out of the Bible. Sunday school stories are then told as tamer versions of the Sunday comics, where Samson substitutes for Superman. David becomes a Hebrew version of Jack the Giant Killer. No, David is not a brave little boy who isn't afraid of the big bad giant. He is the Lord's anointed. God chose David as a king after his own heart in order to prepare the way for David's great son, our deliverer and champion. Now, we're going to talk about that, that story, so I won't, I won't give it away now, um, the David and Goliath story, because I think that's one of the ones that's just often completely misunderstood, and it's right there in the text what the point of the story is. But we miss it, and children's Bibles are often at fault, though if you get the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones, you would really enjoy that, and it would really actually help you. That would be a great companion thing to read while we're going through this, this uh, semester, to get the big picture of the Bible, and you may think, Geez, that's kind of crazy. A children's Bible? You want me to bring a children's Bible? Yeah, I really do. I think it would be great for you to read. And it's got great pictures. Yeah. She's in uh, Tim Keller's church. So she basically took like his sermons and turned it into a children's Bible. And it's really great. So it matters. You don't understand the Old Testament if you don't understand Jesus is in the Old Testament. And that the, all the stories point to one story which has its culmination and fruition in Jesus. Um, not only that, if you don't understand Jesus in the Old Testament, not only do you don't understand the Old Testament, you can't apply or use the Old Testament properly in your life. See, the biggest question when you come to the Old Testament is, is it basically a bunch of stories about what we need to do, or is it a big story with multiple chapters and phases and ups and downs about what God has done and what he promises to do. It's huge that you get that right. Because like I said, if you don't get that question right, is the Bible basically about what you need to do, or is it basically about what God has done? If you get that wrong, you'll never understand the Bible. And certainly you won't understand two-thirds of the Bible, the Old Testament. Here's the point that I'm trying to make at this, at this, at this point here. Faith feeds on the promises of God. A lot of people say, you know, I wish I had more faith. How do you get faith? How does your faith grow? Your faith does not grow by you saying, I wish I had more faith. Your faith doesn't grow by you walking around, beating yourself up, saying, oh, I need to have more faith. I just need to have more faith. Most people in our culture today, and unfortunately too many people in the church, admire people with great faith but they don't seem to think that they can do anything about it. And here's the point. Faith feeds on the promises of God. And the Old Testament 
is the promises of God over and over and over again. If you read the Old Testament as basically what you need to do, you won't read the Bible for very long. You know, a lot of y'all, you know, came from Christian backgrounds where maybe you used to read your Bible and go to youth group. And then, you know, you come to school and a lot of times people quit reading their Bible for various reasons. But one of the common reasons is people just get kind of discouraged. You know, if you go to church your whole life and all you ever hear about is what you need to do, and if whenever you read the Bible, all you really see is, oh, man, I need to do this, and oh, gosh, I should do that, and I really need to do this, and I quit doing that, and I need to do it again. If, if that's all you get when you read the Bible, you're not going to read it for very long. Oh, it may be possible, especially when you live at home and you've got a youth group leader that calls you up every week, you know, and says, have you read your Bible? Or maybe you went to a church. I've had students, and maybe some, probably some of you were them, who every week when you turned in the little tithing envelope, you had a place where you could check if you had a quiet time every day. I won't ask you to raise hands, but do you know there are churches that do that sort of thing, right? In other words, a lot of people grow up with a lot of external pressure to sort of keep them reading their Bible. But the more they read it, the more depressed and discouraged they get because it's just constant bulletins of all the stuff they should be doing that they're not doing. That's what happens when you don't see Jesus in the Old Testament. You just read it as stuff that you're supposed to do or people you're supposed to be like, but there's no power. There's no power. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said in the book of Romans about the Jews of his day? He said the great tragedy is they have zeal without knowledge. And what Jesus said in the passages we looked at specifically is what the knowledge they didn't have, the key that they needed was that the Old Testament, their history, was all about him. And if they don't see that, if they don't see that, they're without hope in the world. And if you don't see that as a Christian, I know that you're not going to keep reading your Bible because it just beats you up all the time. But if you read the Bible and what you find is, oh my gosh, this is how much God loves me? That he, would, that he would persevere in his love for me like that? You'll want to read it some more. So it matters. It's vital that you see that the promises of God are everywhere in the Old Testament. And here's what Paul says. I mean, he makes it very clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, for all the promises of God, that's, that's pretty inclusive, isn't it? All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Some, one of the other translations puts it this way. As many promises as God has made, they are all fulfilled in Christ. Have you ever went through the Old Testament and looked at all the promises? The Apostle Paul says they're all fulfilled in Christ. And it's vital that you see that. And if you don't understand that, you'll not understand a lot. And again, most people I know growing up in Christian homes beat themselves up way too much. And they need to see the promises fulfilled in Christ. So we're going to spend a semester doing that. So where does the story begin? We'll talk a little bit about a particular passage and not just all this. Introductions to a series can always be sort of the most boring part sometimes. So let's look at a particular passage. Where does the story begin? If you want to follow the big picture story in the Bible, where does it begin? If you've got a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 3. Now, I'm not, I don't have time to read all of this. I'm going to assume that you're sort of familiar with the way the Bible starts. The way the Bible starts, it starts with a good creation. God creates. God creates a good world. And he creates a world with mankind and the creation all in this beautiful relationship, flourishing relationship. 
Mankind is made in relationship with God, and it's a beautiful, open relationship that the Bible describes as walking with him in the cool of the day. So what a beautiful picture that is. It's also this picture of mankind in a beautiful relationship with the creation, with nature, with the animals, and all this sort of stuff, and with each other. So this is what God creates, a good creation. And God sets Adam and Eve, mankind, in this garden. But notice the garden is not everywhere. There's a creation, but then there's a garden. And Adam and Eve are set in the garden with a task to expand the garden, to be fruitful and to multiply and take dominion. In other words, to take the garden, the cultivated place, and spread it to the ends of the earth. Why? Because God has created a creation full of God-glorifying potential. And he created human beings to bring that to fruition. That's why the Bible says when Adam and Eve failed to take that responsibility seriously, failed to, to, to do what they were made for, it messed up everything. It's not just a little private issue. Of course, sin never is private as much as we want to think it is. And it certainly wasn't there in the garden. It affected everything. And so the, the story begins with a good creation, but it quickly comes to a tragic, a tragic rebellion. And this is in Genesis chapter 3. Now we're going, to look at, we're going to read a little of this, and then I'm going to make a few points, but they won't be long. Um, in Genesis 3, you, you get this, this story. Uh, we'll pick it up in verse 6, if you have a Bible, or if you have the sheet, you can follow along. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree, and this is the tree that God had said, don't eat from. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. I, I love that. He's standing there, and he's not doing anything. He's not saying anything. He's being a passive man and he failed her, right? Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So he blames her, but he's actually really blaming God. So now we have relational rupture, not just between God and man, but between man and woman. And the woman said, or sorry, then um, God, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above me and I, uh, all, lost, all livestock sorry, and all wild animals. You will crawl in your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity or warfare between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And then if you jump down to verse 21, there's another little section I want to pick up here. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
live forever in a sinful, estranged condition. And so the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, that's flaming angels, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And then down in chapter 4, this last verse, verse 1 and 2. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord... I have brought forth, most of your translations say a man, but the Hebrew actually has the definite article and says, I have brought forth the man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. All right, four points about sin and a few points about grace and then a conclusion. Here they go. What do we need to see in this multifaceted description to understand the rest of the story? Because this is setting the stage for the rest of the story and the rest of the semester. What do we need to see? First, sin is epistemological. And you go, uh, what? What does that mean? Listen, every one of you that goes to Belmont, and I know not everybody here goes to Belmont, every one of you goes to Belmont takes freshman seminar. So you should know what epistemology is. Maybe that word wasn't ever used, but what epistemology is, is basically the study of how do you know what you know? How do you know what you know? How do you know what you know? The Bible is very concerned with that issue. Christianity is very concerned with that issue. And what we see here is that that issue is at the root of what goes wrong. It says here that the woman saw that the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye. What's the problem? God said it was not good for food. And so rather than believe and submit and trust God's word, letting his word define reality, this is not good, instead, the woman's own judgment... And the man was right there with her, so he gets the blame too. Mankind's judgment was, it's good for food. I don't care what God said. What I say is it's good for food. And it's pleasing to the eye. And desirable for gaining wisdom. So I'm going to take it. So basically, the, the tree is there, not just because, for the heck of it. The tree is there as a focal point of obedience. Will mankind believe the word of God, and submit to it. And, when, and, and when, it, when it all comes down, the answer is no. Sin is epistemological rebellion. It's looking at something that God has said, this is not for you, and saying, I don't care what you say. I'm going to usurp your place, and my word and my judgment is going to define reality rather than yours, God. Whenever you sin, that's what's going on. You may think, well, I was tempted or, you know, I, you know, broke the rules or whatever. No, no, it's much deeper than that. You've looked at something that God has said and has word has defined as good or not good. And you've said, I don't care what he says. I'm going to substitute my judgment for his. Epistemological rebellion, substituting our word or judgment for his. All sin is epistemological at its root. The second thing to see here is that sin is being a traitor to our king. Now, you may, not, you may not see this, but the setting here is a royal setting. When Adam and Eve are told back in chapter 2 to take dominion, they are basically being put there as royal representatives. C.S. Lewis picks this up so well in his Chronicles of Narnia, right? Where, you know, it's King Adam and Lady Eve that, that the Narnians refer to them, right? They understand that human beings are royal. They were created royal, 
but they've rebelled against their king. And you see this in the way God says, you know, in the curse on the serpent, that I'm going to put enmity between you and the serpent. But here's what Adam and Eve did in their sin, is they said, rather than be on God's side and for the advancement of his kingdom and taking the garden and spreading it to the world, we're going to side with his enemy and fight against our king. So sin is being traitorous, a traitor, treacherous to your king. Sin cuts at the heart of God, you see, because it's always about betrayal of a king. Sin is also suspicion about God's goodness. I think that's really where the the temptation begins with Eve. Um, God, God says, it's not good for you to eat this. And Satan comes to her and says, are you sure? Are you sure? Why is he holding out on you? And she begins to look at it and say, yeah, it looks good. Why wouldn't God, why wouldn't God want me to have this? What right does he have to deny me something that looks so beautiful? She's, she's suspicious. She begins to believe that God doesn't really care about what's best for her. And therefore, she feels justified in taking matters into her own hands. And sin always starts there. Martin Luther said it one time. He said that before you break any of the Ten Commandments, you first break the first commandment. What he meant is you make God into an idol. You make him into less than he really is. You forget that he's good or that he's powerful or that he cares for you, or that he's faithful. There's something that you imagine God to be less than he really is that justifies you in doing what you want rather than what God wants. So sin is always rooted in suspicion about God. And then the final point I want to make on this is that sin is disordered. Oh, it's not the final one, but it's the final one on this page. Sin is disordered love. You see that? It's not just about doing the right things. Where is your heart? Jesus said, it's your heart. Out of the heart flows all the issues of life. And you see it here in Genesis. The, the, the tree, the fruit of the tree is pleasing to the eye. There's an aesthetic um, love sort of connotation to what's going on here. It's not just do this and don't do that. It's, oh, I love this thing. You're not supposed to love this thing. You're supposed to love God and what he has for you. Her love and, and Adam's love get out of kilter. Turn the page over. Sin is also ruptured relationship. And unfortunately, I think way too many people raised in Christian settings don't get this. They think of sin as breaking the rules. As a matter of fact, it's even a weird word to use anymore because it just sort of calls up all these connotations of sin. Don't do sin. You know, I grew up, you know, with the church lady on Saturday Night Live. And I don't know if y'all, does that ring any bells for you guys now? Dana Carvey's thing, you know, she's just always like, you know, sort of this self-righteous you know, church lady saying, you know, don't do that and don't do this, right? A lot of us have that idea. You hear the word sin and you just sort of think about some old-fashioned fuddy-duddy kind of person talking about sin. Isn't that an outdated concept? Well, here's what's going on in Genesis. It's not about breaking the rules. Oh, no, they ate in the tree. They weren't supposed to. No, they ruptured a relationship with the one who made them for himself to love them and be with them and to walk with them in the cool of the day. And they ruptured that relationship. They tore it apart and they threw it in the trash and they said, we don't care about you and your love, God. Where they used to walk with God in the cool of the day. Can you imagine what that would be like? They used to do that. Now they're hiding. They're hiding. And they sewn fig leaves together. And this is a beautiful picture. You know why? 
because fig leaves, the kind of fig that's talked about here, the fig leaves are huge, but they have huge holes in them. Really bad for covering your nakedness. Now, you don't get that because you're, you're not in the presence of big fig leaves. But the people that read this story in this culture, they understand. This is really bad. It doesn't work very well, right? And everything that we use to try to cover up our nakedness is full of holes. And it leaves us insecure and wanting to hide some more. Whenever we put our, our hope in something else. The problem at the heart of reality is not that we've been thrown out into a cruel, indifferent universe. No, the problem is that there's a relational rupture at the heart of reality. Relational rupture at the heart of reality. And we can't understand not only the Old Testament, but the rest of the Bible and the gospel that Christians call good news unless you understand just how serious and heinous and terrible sin really is. I've always liked this quote by John Bunyan, who's the author of Pilgrim's Progress. Says it about as strong, I think, as you can say it. Sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, and the contempt of his love. And you need to understand that because like Humpty Dumpty, mankind has had a great fall and all the king's horses and all the king's men, nothing that we can do can put us back together again. A lot of you are studying disciplines that think they can fix things, whether it's education or sociology or psychology, all of which are helpful in their place. But none of them, none of them can solve this issue. None of them can fix what sin has broken. That's the context where the Bible starts. It's sort of an inauspicious beginning, isn't it? I was thinking about, uh, about the first time, a couple of my friends, I set this story up, a couple of my friends have teenage daughters who've just gotten their driver's permits, learning permits. And, you know, fortunately I married later and so my kids are still really young. So I have, I have a few years before I have to deal with this reality. Five years at least with Cooper. Oh my gosh, five years. Anyway, can you imagine Cooper driving? Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, listen, what, I was thinking back to the first time I got to drive at night by myself. First time I was allowed to take a car by myself and go somewhere without somebody riding in the car with me. I'm backing out of the driveway and I sideswipe my dad's company car. And my dad, of course, heard this horrible wrenching metal sound and he came outside and he just shook his head and he said, well, you might as well go on. You know, nothing we can do about it. We'll deal with it later. I thought, whoa. I mean, that was a not a great beginning. <laughs> not a great beginning, right? And, I, you know, I had a number of other accidents before I graduated high school, <laughs> too. So maybe it was foreshadowing of what was to come. But my dad gave, it responded in a way I never expected. And, you know, that's, that's just a dim shadow of what we get in the story of redemption here in Genesis 3. Because we get this tragic fall, and then the story goes on. Now, guys, where is grace in this passage? Where is Jesus in this passage? Let me tell you. The fact that the story goes on past Genesis chapter 3 is unbelievable. The Bible should have ended right there. We should have ended right there. We shouldn't even be here. Do you understand? Adam and Eve came and spit in God's face 
and dared him to do something about it. And what he did was he came in and he showed grace to them where they deserved anything but. Where do we see that? Well, grace is God overruling their treachery and switching the teams. You see, Adam and Eve said, we'll be on a team with Satan against you. And God says, nope, I'm not going to let that stand. Oh, I know that was your free will and your choice to choose to be on that team. You don't get to be on that team. I'm going to put warfare where you tried to put peace, and I'm going to put peace where you tried to put warfare. You tried to have peace between you and the serpent against me. No, I'm going to put warfare forever between the seed of the woman and the serpent. Grace is God not allowing your choice to stand. Do you realize that? Please don't go out of here and say, well, I don't like that, you know. You know. I, I love this, this quote by Charles Spurgeon. He said, free, free will has never carried anybody to heaven, but it's carried a lot of people to hell. You may think that's a little strong, but here, God switches the teams without their permission. Adam and Eve are not asking for grace. They're not signing up for anything. They've sinned against God, and God says, I'm going to put warfare where you tried to have peace with the serpent. Nope, I'm putting warfare there, and you tried to have warfare with me. I'm putting peace between us. Grace is God switching the teams. Grace is God not taking no for an answer either and pursuing his people in spite of their sin. Does God really not know where they are? Why does God ask this question? Where are you? The omniscient one who sees all, who knows all, knows where they are. But they don't know where they are. And you see this over and over in the Bible. God asks questions to invite us to ponder where we really are. He doesn't ask questions because he's uninformed and needs to get the answer. And that's what you see. God's pursuit of them, even in their hiding, even in their hiding behind these fig leaves in the, in the, among the trees, and God pursues them. He pursues them in a kind, gracious way. So put that together with what I just said about free will. Because God doesn't come in and overpower them. He comes in and says, where are you? Where are you? Come here. We've got to talk about this. Right? So God doesn't take no for an answer. That's grace. Thank God for his dogged pursuit. Grace is God speaking an unbelievable promise into the midst of their unbelief. Genesis 3.15. The curse on the serpent includes the promise that is the first preaching of the good news of the gospel and the first prophecy that God is going to send one who is un going to undo all that's been made wrong. The seed of the woman, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That's the first preaching of the gospel in the Bible, and it comes from God himself. He's going to send one to crush the head of the serpent, but guys, what it's going to take is for him to go under the sword so that we can get back into the garden. You know, in the temple, they had this this uh, curtain, this embroidered curtain that separated God's people from the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies symbolizes the same idea, access with God, intimate relationship, what we were made for. Embroidered on that curtain were palm trees and a sword. God's people understood 
that to get back to the Holy of Holies, to get back to walking with God in the cool of the day and having this relationship he made us for, somebody has to go under the sword. And that's what Jesus is going to be the one to do. And then God covers them and clothes them. They've tried to cover themselves. It doesn't work. Grace is God's clothing us when we could do nothing to deal with our shame. Here's the first sacrifice to cover God's people, but it won't be the last. There will be a day when God's people will be clothed in a robe of righteousness that Jesus himself earned for them at the cross, a robe that makes us spotless in his sight forever. So why are we still trying to clothe ourselves with our accomplishments, our beauty, our goodness? God clothes his people, and that's grace too. And then here's the last point. This sets the stage for the whole rest of the Bible. It sets the, whole, the stage for the whole rest of the Bible. The story of the Old Testament is the unfolding of this promise in Genesis 3.15. Will God be true to this promise? Will this promised one, the seed of the woman, come and crush the head of the serpent? And if so, when will he come? Eve actually thinks he comes really soon. That's why when she has a baby, she says, great, the Lord has given me the man. That's why it's a significant sort of translation issue. It doesn't say, oh, I have a baby, wonderful. No, when she says, I have the man, she thinks the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent is here. But it's not to be the case. That child will actually murder his brother one day. Now, even before that murder, she doesn't take her long to realize that he's not the one. Because the next baby she has, she names Abel. Do you know what Abel means in Hebrew? It's the Hebrew word hevel, and it means frustration. (laughs) Some of you may not like your names, but at least you're not named frustration. About the first boy, she says, The Lord has given me the man, the one. But it doesn't take her very long before the reality of the tragedy of sin has set in. And she names the next child frustration. And and, and this promise that doesn't come true in Eve's day is, is, is carried all through the Old Testament. Do you understand? The story of the Old Testament is the story of whether God can keep this promise. And there are two great threats, and we're going to see this as we go through the Old Testament this semester. There's the threat of God's external enemies. Listen, when when the Philistines are threatening to wipe out all of Israel, it's not just about a potential genocide, as horrible as that would be. It's about, will Satan be able to wipe out the seed line of the Messiah and thwart this promise from ever being true? But there's another great threat in the Old Testament to this promise, and it's the threat of God's own people being so obstinate and stubborn and full of unbelief, that they try God's patience to the breaking point. And as you go through the Old Testament, the great drama is, will God keep this promise in spite of all the stuff that goes on in the book book of Judges, in spite of all the stuff that provokes God to finally send his people into exile? Will God remain true to this promise in spite of the external threats that want to wipe out the seed line and his own people's unbelief? that provokes his anger. That's the drama. And the answer to that story, well, you already know. 
Jesus came into a world that wasn't looking for him and didn't want him and finally killed him. And still God didn't give up. And that's why you're sitting here today. Because God has called his people to share this good news that in spite of killing his only begotten son, he still would rather die than live without you. So what are you going to do with this? What do you do with all this? <laughs> are you still running and hiding, trying to cover yourself? Let him clothe you tonight. Are you still doubting his goodness? How can you doubt his goodness when we crucified his son and he still wants to love us? Repent and rest in his promises. Are you fighting against him? Probably. <laughs> I do all the time. Heed his invitation tonight to embrace his, his, his offer to be on his side. Lay down your arms. Let's pray and then we're going to sing one more song.